Hi, and welcome back to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Sarah Harrison and Omar Mahmoud. Sarah is a senior analyst on our U.S. program who was behind a major deep dive crisis group recently published, arguing for a new U.S. policy on Somalia. Omar, as listeners know, is Crisis Group's Somalia expert. We discuss the current state and the future of Somalia's war against al-Shabaab and the U.S. role in it all. Omar, welcome back to the podcast, and, and Sarah, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Alan. Happy to be back. Great to be here, Alan. So, Omar, we're going to start with you. Obviously, the major focus on Somalia over this year seems like it's very much still been on this offensive against al-Shabaab. Last time we spoke, there seemed to be a fair amount of optimism, at least regarding some some early gains that the federal government under Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud was getting against al-Shabaab. But how, how does that look now? How has it progressed? Yeah, so I think things are largely on pause right now. Earlier in the year, there was still a little bit of movement, but things got bogged down quite quickly. And for about the middle half of this year, there, was, there wasn't a lot happening. And in, in August of this year, Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud basically decided to go to Dusmareb, the capital of Galmaduk state, where, you know, this was the focus in, in central Somalia, the focus of, of the operational aspect at that point, and, and went there in August to try to sort of revitalize uh, the offensive, kind of breathe fresh life into it. Um, unfortunately, I think, you know, there's a lot of mixed results, uh, in, including negative results as, as, uh, during these past couple months. In late August, there was a, a very significant attack in a town called Oswain in southern Galmadug. And essentially after that attack, there was a reverberating effect, you know, after, after al-Shabaab was basically able to penetrate Somali government structures and, and, and overrun that particular location, Somali security forces basically fell back from surrounding areas. And so there was a collapse of, of that front line in southern Galmadug. And, you know, that attack was, was quite significant because I think it exposed some things about the offensive and some things on, on the government side. You know, there was, there was logistical issues with regards to the Somali security forces kind of outrunning their, their supply lines. You know, there's a lot of questions in the aftermath about coordination between political and military leadership. And, and, you know, I think we should remember, you know, a lot of these forces, Somalia is in, in the midst of really generating. So, so a lot of them don't have much battlefield experience as well. But also, you know, the, the thing we talked about last time and that was a little bit different about this offensive was this idea that, that clan militias or the Mahawisle are involved in partnering with the federal government to sort of push back Shabab. And I think that's kind of ebbed and flowed at various points o- over the past year. You know, I, I think at times the government got away from that and was really reliant a bit more on, on the Somali National Army itself, the Somali sort of formal security forces. But really where we've seen this offensive advance the most has, has been when you've had sort of that local clan pushback element matched up with the, the formal Somali security sector. And it's that combination that has allowed the government to penetrate deeper. But I think if, if we look at basically where you know, the offensive has succeeded to date and where it's gotten bogged down, it's essentially, you know, the X factor to me is, is that clan element. And, and the reality is in some places the government hasn't been able to penetrate and, and al-Shabaab retains support. Hmm. President Hassan Sheikh going for, for two months to the, to, to the field is, is, is quite remarkable. It, it sounds like the offensive in many ways is flagging, um, but would it be overstating it to say that to some it looks like al-Shabaab has sort of retaken the momentum? 
Well, Al-Shabaab's definitely adjusted, and in, in a way, you know, we all expect this is a group that's highly adaptable, highly flexible, often is, is one step ahead of its adversaries, or at least able to, to deploy itself in, in a very adaptable way. So I think they've, they've been able to stall things. You know, the government has held some of the gains that they've made, particularly in, in Hiran, and uh, Middle Shabali, and parts of, of Mudug and, and Galmudug, so out of out of the four regions in central Somalia where this is raging, you know, in, in three of them, there have been significant gains. I think in, in Gal Gadud, things have gotten a bit stalled. What's probably going to happen right now, you know, right now we're in the midst of, of kind of these very heavy El Nino rains. Hassan Sheikh also, after some of these attacks, gave some of the military officers and, and, and soldiers a bit of leave. Some of them had been continuously on the front lines. And so I think, you know, essentially they're probably gearing up to have another shot in, in central Somalia, trying to retake some of the gains that they were lost and solidify some of, some of the other areas. So I would expect, you know, in the next month or so that we start to see some movement again. Hmm. And one of the other major ticket items on Somalia has been the withdrawal deadlines that were negotiated by the former president, Farmajo, for the Atmis troops, formerly Amasom troops, to leave Somalia Somalia has requested those withdrawals to be delayed. You know, what, what's the status of that? And, and obviously, there's a lot of skepticism when this was signed about whether or not Somalia's federal forces would actually be able to take over from Atmis forces in terms of providing security. Does that skepticism now look quite warranted? Yeah, I mean, the the issue with the Atmos and, and the, the drawdown uh, is, is, you know, one that's on kind of everyone's minds right now. Um, essentially, what happened was was phase two of that uh, four-phase drawdown plan, which was supposed to happen at the end of September and meant the withdrawal of 3,000 troops, was pushed back three months. This was something the Somali government communicated very late in, in the process. So, so you know, there, there's a communications issue there in terms of this happening so kind of ad hoc and, and towards the end. There's a perennial question about funding for the mission. You know, delays in the mission, I think, uh, broadly accepted by by partners and those participating, but there's no real f- new funding that automatically kicks in. So, so the mission is running a deficit, which which each delay compounds. And you know, this has been a constant issue for years. The EU does pay troop stipends, but they've signaled sort of the the extent of what they're willing to pay, and no one else has really been able to fill fill the gap. But the third one, and, and what you allude to, I think, is the big question about what does this then imply for the overall plan for Atmos to withdraw by the end of 2024, and for Somalia to take over primary security responsibility. This, as you mentioned, was a plan negotiated by the previous government after they had actually extended their constitutional mandate and we were in the throes of this electoral dispute. So it wasn't really the best time, I think, to be negotiating such pivotal sort of frameworks about Somali security going forward. But the the benefit, I think, of this last sort of delay is it sort of opened that conversation up a little bit more. You know, I think previously everyone was really sticking to their positions that, you know, by the end of 2024, this is going to happen. There'll be a full withdrawal of Atmos and, and Somali security forces in primary responsibility. But I think there's a rising sense privately that there will still need to be an international support effort to Somali security services, you know, even if, you know, transition continues to happen, end of 2024 might be a a very ambitious timeline. So a lot of options are kind of being thrown around right now. But I imagine we won't get to the point where, you know, Atmos leaves and there's a, a full security vacuum by the end of 2024. And and just to provide more more context uh, for our listeners, how, how many Atmos forces 
Uh, were there in Somalia, and then how many were supposed to be drawn down in this latest phase? When Atmos was reformed from Amasom in April of last year, there was 19,000, and 2,000 left in the first phase, and so 3,000 more were supposed to leave in this phase. So basically, by the end of this year, that, that reduces 5,000 troops, so you're down to about 14,000. And then the plan was for two more phases, one by June of, of 2024, the other one by December of 2024, in which all the rest of them would leave. And then I imagine part of this equation also is regional states and neighboring states. Earlier this year, there was quite a bit of talk of what was being called the frontline states, the, the neighboring states to Somalia. And, you know, I think there was a hope on the Somali government side that neighboring states would throw more weight behind their offensive against al-Shabaab. Um, do we see any new signs of major regional involvement? So I think this idea of a frontline states initiative or sort of the black line operation, as it was termed, is, is essentially dead for now. You know, I don't think anyone's expecting that to occur anytime soon, especially compared to the fanfare we were seeing earlier in, in the year, which you know included a meeting at the heads of states level and some commitments there. And there's probably a, a couple reasons for this. You know, first is is that the war in central Somalia rages on. You know, the, this operation for southern Somalia, which would involve, you know, Kenyan, Ethiopian and, and other troops, was really kind of presented as sort of a, a final lightning advance on, on al-Shabaab in southern Somalia. It's, it's strongholds there. But in order to do that, you know, that's premised on rooting the group out of central Somalia. Otherwise, it can just sort of retreat that way. And, and so the fact that, you know, the struggles and, and, and that the offensive has gotten bogged down in central Somalia, I think, means that the next phase in, in southern Somalia has been difficult to to kind of operationalize. But but, you know, I think the other side, of course, is, is probably enthusiasms waned from from the neighbors as, as well. I think they're they were willing and, and, and ready to sort of help Somalia significantly roll back uh, al-Shabaab. But they're wary about kind of fighting Somalia's war forward or getting bogged down in there. And, you know, that's what we've seen from, from previous operations as well. Of course, there's internal developments going on in, in both, you know, Ethiopia and Kenya, you know, other, other sort of security concerns, economic concerns. And Kenya is also, interestingly enough, planning for a another foreign deployed operation in Haiti these days. So I'm sure that also kind of distracts. And then on top of this, you know, the funding was never clear for this type of mission. You know, we talk about the, the funding for Atmos. You know, initially, these countries were kind of signaling that this would be self-funded and whatnot. That, that seemed a difficult proposition, especially given the ec economic state of the region. There was talk that maybe some, some Gulf actors, particularly the UAE, might come in to fund the operation, but that seems to have stalled. So I don't expect it to be revived in the near future, you know, unless kind of some of those some of those aspects got figured out. You know, it's not to say that the neighbors aren't interested in, in preventing al-Shabaab spillover to, to their areas. They, they certainly are. But I think, you know, it, because of those issues in terms of the Somali government's push against al-Shabaab because of funding, because of other dynamics, you know, the region's sort of more defaulted to its, its traditional framework, which is basically to prevent al-Shabaab spillover rather than trying to, trying to root out the group deep into Somalia. And then uh, a final question as an update for everyone before we turn to, to Sarah and talk more about uh, U.S. policy specifically. You did this uh, big 
piece of work uh, looking at exploring options for dialogue with al-Shabaab. And then after that came out, of course, we had uh, the new president come into Somalia, the launch of this offensive, and it seemed like the pendulum swung a bit towards more optimism that there could be a, a military or, or military-led solution. I should say optimism from, from, from some quarters. Now that this operation is flagging more, would you say that pendulum has sort of swung back? What, what's the state of that conversation of people sort of recognizing or being in denial of the fact that there needs to be at some, at some stage an, an end game uh, to this war? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. The pendulum's shifted quite a bit. Um, there was a lot of talk, especially a year ago, that al-Shabaab would be militarily defeated, that this dynamic of sort of involving the clan in, in operations was basically the formula to, to root out the group. You know, which in, in some level is, is, is true, but, but it, it's been hard for, you know, uh, basic clans to switch sides. I think those that had pre-existing issues with Shabab are more the ones that have kind of gravitated and partnered with the government. Those that al-Shabaab is embedded with and has close ties have remained that way. So we haven't seen a lot of shifting kind of back and forth on, on that front. So when it comes to, to the question about military, you know, prospects and, and negotiations, yeah, I mean, I think inevitably as operations get bogged down, people then start to wonder, okay, well, what next? You know, well, how, how do we resolve this? And of course, you know, this this potential to engage Shabab in, in, in dialogue, you know, as, as complicated as this is, and we've gone over that many times in, in the past, but that sort of option, I think, resurfaces a little bit. Now, I, I don't think it's resurfaced to the point where, you know, this is an active policy consideration or whatnot. I think it's resurfaced to the point of, okay, you know, what does a negotiated solution look like? You know, what would need to happen in order for that to occur? Is that the path, you know, we should be going down? And, and so it's kind of popped back up a little bit in, in the conversation. On the Somali government side, you know, I think they've kind of maintained the line that basically they want to negotiate anything from a, a position of strength. This has sort of always been the theory of change, you know, put pressure on Shabab and essentially almost militarily defeat it on the battlefield and then talk to it afterwards. And I think that's kind of basically where, where you know, that, that kind of theory kind of remains right now. But yes, inevitably, I think, you know, within Somali society, within others, looking at sort of this, this conflict dynamic as operations get bogged down, sort of alternative, thinking about alternatives pops up. So I imagine this question will, will sort of come back into the picture a bit more. Mm. And so I think that's a, a great segue to you, Sarah. Um, you've spent years with us at Crisis Group, especially focusing on the U.S. Uh, approach towards Somalia. You know, we talk mostly in this podcast of Somalia from a sort of ground perspective, obviously from a more multilateral perspective. But yeah, you've had a chance to dive really deep on the U.S. side of things um, and very much look into what's been a very defense, security, military dominated approach. Obviously, from Washington's perspective, Somalia has its own framings related to 9-11 and the so-called forever wars. Um, so just, just walk us through how Somalia looks from a policy perspective perspective from the perch in Washington. Yeah, thank you, Alan. I think it might be helpful to just talk a little bit about the previous three administrations and how they approached the war in Somalia. It is, like you described, focused on counterterrorism and defense uh, and military measures. And it started in the Bush administration, uh, which was basically hesitant to you know, have any boots on the ground, any U.S. forces in country. But the administration eventually supported Ethiopia's invasion in 2006 to push out the Islamic Courts Union and conducted its first airstrike in 2007 before 
the Bush administration left, they designated Al-Shabaab a foreign terrorist organization, which is a designation that still stands today. And so when President Obama came into office, he did continue these airstrikes in Somalia and did not ramp them up until the second administration, really after Al-Shabaab had formally associated itself with Al-Qaeda. And it more than doubled, the Obama administration more than doubled airstrikes in country. And it, it really had only focused on airstrikes up until then. And the Obama administration decided uh, to send a small number of U.S. forces into the country to help train a special forces unit within the Somali army called the Danab. And by the time the Obama administration exited, they teed up for the Trump administration this legal decision to allow airstrikes not only on forces within al-Shabaab that they considered to be al-Qaeda members, but any member of al-Shabaab could be targeted. And so the Trump administration was considered this gloves-off period for commanders to ramp up airstrikes, which accumulated to the point that it was a much higher number than both the Obama and Bush administration airstrikes combined. But by the end of the administration, President Trump decided to pull the small number of U.S. forces in the country out by January of 2021, so right before he left. So you can see the differences in approach, but mostly focused on counterterrorism and not really thinking through what is a strategy for peace and security in Somalia, but more of this light footprint, this global war on terrorism light is is sometimes what it's referred to, to try to contain al-Shabaab. And so that's what Biden inherited is this decision from Trump to pull forces out. And um, he, he had to decide whether or not to have forces back in Somalia on a persistent basis. Yeah, so I think it's it's really great we're we're having this conversation at a time when um when as Omar is describing the the sort of military solution uh, in Somalia looks uh, bogged down. So you have Biden coming in and inheriting this long uh, bipartisan or cross-partisan legacy in Somalia. You've had Trump pull out the US forces in Somalia and then yeah, how and uh, why did the Biden administration decide to send those forces back to Somalia. When Biden entered office, he did something that most presidents do, and he had some several reviews through the National Security Council of U.S. foreign policy. And the reviews related to Somalia were one, uh, the focus of force posture. The other two reviews related were more of a, a broader Somalia policy. You know, what does the U.S. government prioritize there? What are is it, what will be its objectives? And the third was a policy related to airstrikes outside of Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria, which affects Somalia. But the big one, the force posture review, was led by the CT directorate within the National Security Council. So it was really outside of this like foreign policy decision making about really kind of led by the State Department, it was more led by counterterrorism experts of, you know, do we want forces back in Somalia on a persistent basis? At the time, what was happening is forces were, U.S. forces were rotating in and out of Somalia to train the Danab. They weren't there on a persistent basis, so it was consistent with the Trump administration's directive to withdraw, but it was seen as quite risky and costly for these forces to go in and out of Somalia so nobody 
in the Biden administration thought that that should be continued. The other option put forward was to completely withdraw and, and no longer have U.S. forces go into Somalia and train Danab at all. And I think, you know, based on our conversations with U.S. officials, no one agreed that that was a good option either. And so the Biden administration, even officials who, you know, wanted to wind down post 9-11 counterterrorism forever wars, thought that this option to send a few hundred forces back into Somalia was low cost and low risk and really being pushed as the best option forward by the Department of Defense and General Townsend, the head of AFRICOM at the time. And so nobody at the State Department pushed back on this. Many officials thought this was a good idea and the same at the National Security Council. And so this is the decision Biden made in May of 2022. And it was shared with the newly elected president in Somalia because they obviously needed his consent. And he welcomed that and, and welcomed that very publicly. So I think U.S. internal decision making can look quite opaque to many, um, including probably many of our listeners. How does this sort of CT defense DOD driven strategy on Somalia for the U.S., how does that compare to how the U.S. tends to adopt its policies towards other African countries, other countries in the Horn? Yeah, I mean, I think because the U.S. has had, you know, a 16-year military engagement in Somalia, there is equity there for, this is what the U.S. government would say, for DOD to be heavily involved in policymaking and, and prioritizing what the U.S. government will be doing in the country. I think it's become a little a bit of a, you know, putting the cart before the horse, having DOD lead on these things, because it really should be that, like in other African countries that you're describing, that the State Department is developing broader U.S. foreign policy. And then, you know, any, mil any, any military component comes after that, whether it's security cooperation, which happens in other countries across the African continent, or military engagement like we see in Somalia. So that really should be subsequent to any administration's broader foreign policy in a country and like identifying the objectives of, you know, what does the State Department hope to see as important outcomes from U.S. influence and investment in a country over the period of an administration, whether it's four or eight years, and then have the decision made, well, okay, we need, you know, certain military support here or there to meet those objectives. And instead, in the Biden administration, these decisions happened in parallel. And what decision did, did uh, the Biden administration make regarding drone strikes in Somalia? Yeah, so outside of what they consider areas of active hostilities, which are Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria at the time, this is like, you know, at the beginning of the Biden administration, they kind of put on pause airstrikes, except for those approved by the president or those conducted in collective self-defense. And since the beginning of the administration, most of the airstrikes in Somalia have been conducted in what's called collective self-defense. And, and basically what that means is that AFRICOM is defending a partner force that is identified as eligible for receiving that kind of defense under this theory of collective self-defense. There have been some strikes, but it's a minority in, in, the, in the vast majority of strikes under the Biden administration, which has been about a dozen a year, if you look on average, maybe a little more than that, a year per, you know, within, this Biden, within the Biden administration. 
There have been some that are specific for what's called high-value targets, which have been approved by the president. But yeah, so most of these strikes are conducted in collective self-defense of Somali forces who are going out and fighting al-Shabaab. And this sometimes, you know, looks like there's a planned offensive and there is an awareness that al-Shabaab, you know, will be fighting back against the Danab or other Somali forces. And so AFRICOM is ready to conduct these strikes in defense of Somali forces. But that's mostly how this has played out in Somalia under the Biden administration. And per the uh, the discussion we just had with with Omar about, you know, an endgame, obviously crisis group is, you know, on the record with being quite skeptical that there will be any any military solution to this war in Somalia. How do U.S. officials see the end game of this war against al-Shabaab and uh, potentially having something that would look like political negotiations with with al-Shabaab? How do they respond to questions when you start pointing at the, the end game factor? I think for the most part, there's not a ton of pushback. It depends on who you talk to in, the, in this administration. There hasn't been a ton of pushback when we bring this issue up of eventual negotiations. The pushback that we get is, well, right now is not the time, and that, and, and that you know, the U.S. is not going to lead on this, which we agree. We agree this would be a Somali-led negotiation. But I think that there is frustration within the Biden administration, within some offices in Congress, about this containment strategy, not actually considering what is the end game, not actually thinking through what is the long-term strategy for the U.S., how does it ensure that its investment reflects something positive and and real lasting stability in Somalia. So I think that like one one important thing is that they they should be thinking about this question very carefully and thoughtfully and it doesn't really seem to be a part of the conversation and and part of this is because I think it's a, a few reasons and one is because Somalia is not necessarily a priority for the U.S. government, whether it's the executive branch or Congress, as it relates to all of the other issues it's dealing with in foreign policy. And so many officials are comfortable for it to be on this glide path of counterterrorism to just keep Somalia in a box, which is what how one official described it, or you know just contain al-Shabaab and be comfortable with that. But I think that there is there is starting to be some recognition that eventually there will have to be negotiations. But I I still think that in Washington, there's not enough of this long-term thinking on Somalia, which is where our recommendations are really focused on, including, you know, really emphasizing Omar's research and writing on engagement with al-Shabaab. Yeah, so I want to get to these uh, recommendations uh, shortly. First, uh, Omar, I want to bring you back in the conversation for a second. Uh, partly because it, it feels like often uh, that there's a, you know, that there's silos uh, around these sort of conversations uh, revolving around Somali political dynamics, and then often the the more, uh, as there often is a sort of uh, Washington conversation that has its has its own framings. Um, how, how do these framings about the forever wars and the controversy around U.S. drone strike policy? How how do these look to Somalis that you uh, speak to? Well, I think if you talked to the Somali government, 
they would probably agree that the U.S. is focused on, on a containment strategy. Uh, but their argument would be, you know, the, the glove should come off. You know, they need uh, greater U.S. support, particularly military support, in order to advance their fight against Shabab. So the drone strikes play into that. You know, I think many Somali officials see uh, great utility in this in terms of sort of keeping the pressure on Shabab. And, and so they kind of argue that they would need actually increased U.S. support along a number of these fronts. And I think the U.S. has shown, especially the last, you know, maybe a couple months, that, that they're willing to, to, you know, support and do what they're currently doing, but probably not going to ramp up, you know, much beyond that. When it comes to maybe more more average Somalis, you know, I think some of them, you know, aren't always aware of exactly what the U.S. is doing. Um, you know, I think others maybe have a preconceived sort of negative connotation as well. The other point I would just make here is, is you know, I think some questioned, you know, this report and, you know, why focus so much on U.S. policy in, in Somalia? And, you know, I think part of it is, is because the U.S. is such a dominant actor in, in Somalia. You know, a lot of actors follow the U.S. lead. You know, the space is a bit more open than it was in, in the past. There's much more sort of non-traditional donors from the Gulf, Europeans and regional uh, actors and others kind of involved in Somalia. But I, I still think, you know, the U.S. is kind of one of the dominant actors, not just on, on the war against Shabab and other areas. And so, you know, how, how the U.S. goes about things tends to influence others as well. Omar, just, just one more quick uh, a question. I've always had a sense that the uniqueness of U.S. policy on Somalia is sort of not being driven by State Department primarily and, and having these more sort of CT rather than clearly political objectives that it, you know, it creates more of a gap between the U.S. and, you know, what are often called other like-minded partners. Is that perception a, a true one? Yeah, at times you do see this flare up a little bit. You know, some of the other donors will kind of almost, you know, flippantly remark that the U.S. is, is so, you know, military focused and whatnot. There's other issues going on. You know, I, I think some of this plays out actually right now with, with Hassan Sheikh being in Dusmareb for the past two months and focused solely on basically the war against against Shabab. You know, I just came back from a trip to, to Mogadishu and you had some partners really kind of, you know, championing his his commitment and dedication, you know, and his, and his ability to go up country for, for a couple months and, and spend some time there. Others were actually concerned about look at all these other issues, this range of governance issues, the lack of a finalized constitution, the sort of electoral model and all these kind of debates that, that are coming up a bit. And, and we're arguing that, you know, he wasn't spending enough time on, on these sorts of issues. So, you know, I think it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. But clearly, you know, the U.S. has, has been more on the security side. And I think at times, yes, that has created a, a bit of a gulf with with partners. Sarah, going back to you, walk us through the the recommendations you've come to on how to adjust U.S. policy, rebalance uh, U.S. policy, as I think you, you you describe it on Somalia. So our recommendation is for the Biden administration to think about rebalancing policy. One thing to emphasize is, you know, looking back at the history of U.S. military engagement in Somalia, even in the period where the Trump administration had the gloves off period and ramped up airstrikes. The conflict continued to grow and Al-Shabaab actually conducted one of its worst attacks on U.S. forces in Mandabay in Kenya. And so this, this really gets at our recommendations because the point is that even with all of this military might, they're not really making progress on the ground until they start investing in things like stabilization and reconciliation. So that's really where we focused our recommendations on rebalancing policy for the U.S. government. 
On the stabilization side, we really emphasized this idea of quick impact projects and liberated territory so that the U.S. can go in and and help the Somali government just start to provide certain services, whether that just be, you know, humanitarian assistance like water and food and and medical services or repairing boreholes that al-Shabaab has destroyed. But it'd be really important to solidify the gains that the government has has been able to, to, you know, or the areas, the territories the government has been able to push al-Shabaab out of. Because in the past, al-Shabaab just comes back to these areas if there's not an extension of the Somali government, if there's not an extension of, you know, services and assistance. And we think Congress can help here. (laughs) You know, Congress could provide more money for stabilization to Somalia. We don't think in this political environment right now, especially with what's happened in the last couple of months, that there will be any more support from Congress on funding. What they could do is provide more oversight of of U.S. policy, really, in Somalia to make sure there's not this, you know, continued glide path of counterterrorism. And really what's very important is that the Senate confirms the ambassador that was nominated, the U.S. ambassador that was nominated by Biden back in March. The U.S. ambassador, the previous one, just left in May. And so the U.S. mission there has been without an ambassador for months. So it's really important to have someone there to really push on U.S. policy at that level. And then the part of this stabilization recommendation is also focused on reconciliation and how can the U.S. government provide funding for reconciliation? Because, you know, deep divisions within Somali society, whether they're political or societal, are fragmenting the country. And in order to really push against Shabaab with a, you know, a unified vision, a unified front, reconciliation efforts are going to be really important. So we really emphasize to the U.S. that they should be supportive of these efforts and then in, in, in the reconciliation bubble, we talk about this, you know, long-term effort to wind the conflict down via negotiations with Shabab. So we, we start with really concrete recommendations that the U.S. can take on and then, and then get kind of more long-term and bigger picture. But we do think that right now inside the U.S. government, they should be socializing this idea that this is how this war will end. There will have to be a negotiation. And to socialize that now is important because bureaucracy takes forever to develop new policy and to get on the same page. So that's really the kind of the framework of our, our, of our recommendations. And they seem to be mostly well-received within the U.S. government so far. Hmm. And, and Omar, taking a bit of a, a wider view, how does you know, a more political approach to Somalia, how would, how, how would that look on your end? What would that actually look like? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the efforts in in Somalia have been on the state building path, you know, building the structures of the state, whether that's forming the the member states, you know, having a setting up a parliament, you know, the the, the structures that it looks like that there is a state there. There hasn't been as much on the peace building side, essentially ensuring that grievances at a local level are are addressed. You know, this is where the reconciliation aspect comes in. You know, I think there's a a very significant gap within the Somali sphere of a reconciliation project at all levels of of society. And I think this is why we see such recurrent sort of political conflicts. And and as well, you know, something that Al-Shabaab is able to thrive on and able to insert itself into the clan system where pre-existing grievances exist. So I think all of that, you know, kind of goes to show that 
you know, in terms of moving the needle on, on Somalia, I think there's a lot more of the political work, you know, the, the um, deep reconciliation work that needs to be done, not as much on the state building work. You know, I think we've been so focused on that state building project and sort of the trappings of the state that it's ignored kind of the, the underlying aspects of it. So, Omar, one final one while I have you. Sorry to throw you a curveball, but we've had a bit of a, a seismic wave in the region as Ethiopia Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has made a public appeal that Ethiopia as a power cannot remain landlocked and needs access to the sea. I imagine this hasn't been received well, but 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 how has this been received and how does this look from uh, Mogadishu and, and Hargeisa's perspective? Yeah, no, I mean, it certainly hasn't been received well. You know, I'm not sure to what degree maybe there is some uh, media overhype of the message or whether this message was directed at, at Somalia compared to other neighbors, but but it certainly didn't go down well in, in Somalia. You know, I mean, I think we all know the backdrop of, of very historically tense relations between Ethiopia and Somalia, you know, which date back, you know, hundreds of years, you know, Somalia. History always has point, painted Ethiopia as, as an aggressor. And, you know, in the post-colonial period, there's been multiple wars fought. And even in the more recent times, you know, Ethiopia maintains a, a true presence on, on Somali soil. So so clearly didn't go down well. You know, I mean, Al-Shabaab basically very quickly put out a, a message seizing on some of these dynamics to, to you know, generate a bit of anti-Ethiopian sentiment, you know, a very, very common messaging narrative for them. But we also had other Somali officials basically come out and say, you know, this is this is not going to come to pass. You know, we're not going to forcefully give up any of our sovereignty, any 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 of our our territory. You know, maybe just a couple interesting points on that. I'd, I'd make you know one one is I, I think this actually then contrasts to what we were talking about earlier about frontline states initiative and whatnot, and and the complications of the Ethiopia Somalia relationship, because basically you know ten months ago. The Somali government was inviting up to 20,000 Ethiopian troops on, onto their soil. Now, you know, 10 months later, they're, they're worried about the, the forceful imposition of Ethiopia in order to, to acquire a port. The second point, though, I, I would make is, I mean, there, there is a large framework for cooperation between, you know, the Somali coast and, and the Ethiopian market. You know, there's, there's kind of a scramble for development of, of Somali ports right now. But a lot of them, you know, really only make market sense, only only make very significant business sense if they are connected to Ethiopia. And, and so I think that framework for a cooperative relationship exists. You know, you've had developments in the port of Berbera where DP World, a UAE company, is basically modernized and, and refurbished that port. And, and now there's a corridor going to the Ethiopian coast. You know, there was an interesting port development, really more community-led in, in Garad, which is part of Puntland. And now they're talking about, okay, how can they also connect to Ethiopia by road. So so I think, you know, the Somali coast and, and the Ethiopian market, it makes sense for some sort of cooperative framework. But of course, you know, it has to be done in a cooperative manner to avoid inflaming all of these historic tensions and whatnot. Just a note for listeners, obviously the, the main concern as far as tensions goes right now is between Ethiopia and Eritrea, and we'll have we'll have more on that for you soon. Thanks, Omar. Thanks, Sarah, so much for, for coming on and doing this um, doing this uh, double episode in, in a way. I um, uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks, Alan. Appreciate being here. Yeah, thank you, Alan. Thanks for listening. You can read all our reports, including the ones we've talked about here at crisisgroup.org. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell, and our producers are Maeve Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. 